AI is a weird field, right? It's it's this combination of various fields, and it's always been like this, right? Since the 50s, when the term was coined, it's this blend of computer science and neuroscience and psychology that has always been the case, and it continues to be the case. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world, and I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Cade Metz is a journalist who's been covering technology for the past few decades. And he recently wrote a book, Genius Makers, which is kind of a historical document up until the present about artificial intelligence and the people that built the technology behind it. I have so many questions about this book. I can't wait to talk to him. So you were the first non-ML practitioner to, to ever appear on this podcast. So I'm excited to do this. And we might take things in a different direction than... Um, normal, but I was really excited to talk to you. I kind of procrastinated on, on reading your book and then I actually really enjoyed it. I was kind of afraid that I wouldn't, you know, the name made me a little worried that it might be a bit over the top or something like that. And I also felt like typically when, you know, when you read journalism on topics, you know, really well, it's hard not to be critical or feel like, you know, the, the person didn't, you know, get something exactly right. But then I actually, it's, it's, you know, it kind of reminded me of that show Silicon Valley, just in its like incredibly accurate details. Like, I, I feel like I've been in this world of, of machine learning and I've been in a world of venture capital, which are kind of the two main topics that your book covers and just all the little anecdotes and details, they really just rank true to me. Like I, I felt like, you know, you do these things where you, you explain math and you, ex, you explain sort of like when someone makes fun of somebody for, you know, differentiation by faith, what that means, or like, you know, you ex describe what a TPU does and you really actually go into technical detail that I'm not even sure I would necessarily do, you know, if I was writing for a mass um, audience. And I, and I actually think you are remarkably accurate in that. And then you sort of describe these like very vivid scenes that just seem like, you know, sometimes I feel like when you read sort of descriptions after the fact of a scene of like you know, an acquisition or a fundraiser or something, it's like, I don't think this journalist really, <laughs> you know, was getting accurate mm. information or transcribed it the way it, it just didn't, doesn't feel right sometimes, but your book really felt accurate to me. And it was like a really interesting lens for me, just on a world that I've been sort of adjacent to, you know, some of the folks have been on our podcast, some of them are customers of ours now. So I know, you know, I know a lot of the characters in your book, but I don't kind of get to know them intimately in the way that, that you clearly got to know them. So I actually, you know, the question I was kind of dying to ask you, which has really like, maybe nothing to do with ML is just how did you get so much access and how, what was your process for researching this book? Because there, there are some details. I'm just surprised you got someone to tell you. And it's not like you're sort of recanting interviews that you did. It's like somehow you just, it seems like you must have actually sat down with Jeff Hinton for a significant amount of time to be able to write this or, or, or maybe you have some other process that I <laughs> don't understand. No, well, I mean, well, well, I, I will tell you, but like, you know, it's really interesting for me, first of all, to hear what you thought you might get. And then also what you might've gotten in, in the end after reading it, like in, in a way there was a, there was a time when I started you know, work on this book and really got into it when I realized it was a really dumb idea because <laughs> on, one, on one sense, your audience hopefully is going to be machine learning professionals and researchers who are really steeped in this stuff. And if you if you venture too far outside that world, you're going to, to, to get them angry with you and you're going to lose them. 
But ultimately, the, the, the goal of the book should be to have any reader pick this up and enjoy it. And that should be the goal as well. And if you move too far towards the machine learning researcher, you're going to get those people angry and they're not going to take up your book. And the trick becomes to, to find the sweet spot right in the middle. And, and that's, that's very difficult. And then on top of that, within the machine learning community, we act like that's a monolithic thing. It's mm -hmm. actually this huge spectrum as well. And this is what, you know, I get to at the end of the book, really, is that, you know, you have some people who believe this is just math and you have other people who where this is something more. Right. This is this is sort of this almost it's almost like a religion. And this is going to create AGI. This is going to create a machine that can do anything the human brain can can do. So within the ML community. You had this spectrum where people really, really disagree. And 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 the goal is to and somehow, you know, get all those people interested in your book. It seems like a mistake um, to even try that. But here here is what I really believe in. And this sort of gets back to your question. Ultimately, this is a book about people. Right. This is a book about some really interesting people, and they are interesting in incredibly different ways, from Jeff Hinton to Demis Sabas at DeepMind to Jeff Dean. I can go on down the list. Tim Neat Gebru, who is in the news recently because she really clashed with people at Google, including Jeff Dean. You know, these are these are really interesting people who are really interesting in a lot of different ways. And ultimately, that's what this book is. Right. It's a book about the people. And what I realized is that I, if I can just show who these people are and who they're, and what their stories are and how all those stories fit together, then that, that's what makes it successful, right? And what, what that's about, what, what finding what those people are about, ultimately, it's about spending the time with them, I mean, you know, as you indicated, right? And that takes a lot of doing. Right. You just some people, um, because they work for these giant companies, you can't really get at them initially. So you, you try somebody else and you get some good stories from them and you go back to the first person and you say, hey, I've got this. What else can you tell me? And you develop in some ways a relationship with them. You know, I tend to like even as you get close to these people, you know, keep a little bit of a distance as a journalist. I think that's important too, because again, you've got to have an objective view and be able to, to really appreciate and rope in, you know, the beliefs and the experiences and the points of view of all these different people. But it's about years and years and years of gathering information um, and understanding it yourself and and taking it back to people and say, can we talk about this more? And then somewhere along the way, you, you, you know, you get them to talk. Well, you know, I can only speak for myself, but I thought it was a really interesting book. I mean, just my, I, you know, I couldn't put it down once I started it. One thing I was wondering about is the ending I thought was very understated. Like, you know, it's, it sort of ends with, with Jeff Hinton, who's kind of the main, I mean, I feel like he's almost like the main character in your book kind of saying like, well, maybe AGI isn't that important of a spoiler alert, <laughs> I guess. Um, well, but, you know, but you know, I, and I thought, I thought it doesn't even like, like he's kind of like, well, what, like, would you really want a vacuum cleaner? That's you know, this was my takeaway. I'm curious, like if I, if I got it wrong or different than your intention, tell me, but you know, I was thinking, does he really like a, a vacuum cleaner that could like 
you know, navigate my house and, and be smart about like when to turn on and off and stuff. I mean, it doesn't really exist. And I actually, I think I would want my vacuum cleaner, I think to be, you know, reasonably smart and, and, you know, bordering on, you know, if it could, you know, reason about the world that, that seems like it would actually be kind of better than, a, than a Roomba that, that, you know, can't yet. I was kind of surprised that Jeff Hinton thinks that, and it sort of felt different than what most of the people in your book were thinking. I was just kind of curious. And and then you actually say, you sort of say, but, you know, he kind of invested in, you know, some crazy reinforcement learning company. So maybe he doesn't even really think that, you know, and I'm kind of just kind of left with, I wonder like, what's the, what's the takeaway here? And I was also wondering what's, what's kind of your takeaway? Cause you really noticeably never seem to take a position on this stuff, but I mean, you've been watching the field for, for decades. I'm, I'm sure you have um, opinions on this. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting that you would in, in some ways have that takeaway that the ending is understated and sort of questioning AGI almost. You know, my first book review has come out. There's this trade publication called Kirkus, which which reviews big, big books. And their takeaway is completely the opposite. Like if you read the <laughs> review, it is Cade Metz is making the case that AGI is possible. Right. And so it is it is the completely other end of the spectrum than you. And and I completely understand why the two of you have come to different <laughs> conclusions, because and it makes me happy because that's my aim. My aim is not to judge. My aim is not to make a call. My aim is to show what is going on in the world and what has gone on over the past 10 years. And you have someone like Jeff Hinton, who is one of the most respected people in the field, at the same time, there are people who, who can't stand him because they feel like he has gone too far. There are people who can't stand him like because he doesn't go far enough and mm-hmm. doesn't say that AGI is around the corner. And, you know, you're right. The book ends with him, you know, in a way questioning AGI, but it also ends with him changing, right? Him embracing some stuff, namely reinforcement learning, that he hadn't embraced in the past and he sees the value there and he sees it accelerating. And in a way, he's just not going as far as some other people. And, you know, I think the book ends with some people who who take a, a, a very different view and who do think AGI is around the corner and it states them very explicitly. Right. And, you know, I, I think it's I think it's about showing where all these people are coming from and letting the reader make their own decision about what's really going to happen. You know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, one of the things that struck me about your book is you're sort of describing in a historical, like a historian feeling way, something that's like completely in progress. Like there's, there's a whole bunch of things that happen, you know, right after your book stops, right? Like, you know, Timnit and Jeff Dean and, and all the stuff that happened at, at Google. And then I was actually thinking, it's funny, like Yoshua, I think in your book, he's not really doing a lot of commercial stuff in contrast to some of the other characters. But then, you know, I think Element AI, you know, recently kind of sold. And that was like a bit of a, you know, controversy if that was a good outcome or a bad outcome. And then, you know, OpenAI went, you became a private company. I, I, did you have a sense of like the book needs to stop here? Or was there other stuff that you kind of wanted to include? Well, like, could there be a sequel to this? <laughs> there could. But you know what's interesting about all the stuff you mentioned? And, and I would argue like almost everything in the book. It is completely in tune with what happens in the book, right? Uh, Timnit Gebru is a character in the book, and the same things happen in the book. It's just with a different company, right? It's with Amazon, right? Okay, right. it's not with Google, and then it happens with Google. 
Yashua Bengio, you know, he has stayed outside or more outside of the commercial realm than Hinton and Lacoon. But as the book goes into, like, he dips his toe, certainly, right? In the book, you know, it's, you know, it's his partnership with Microsoft. He's also had one with, with IBM. And with all these people, it, it's sort of a balancing act. And I think that's what the book is about, is that you have these very idealistic people, whether it's Tim Neat or it's Joshua or Hinton, and they all come into contact with these forces that are frankly much bigger than them, these corporate forces, these government forces. And, you know, when that happens, there's going to be conflict. And all those conflicts that have come since I finished the book, it's all happening in the book as well. And, you know, what, you know, OpenAI, you know, how many times have they gone back and forth, uh, you know, as far as what they're going to do and what they're not going to do? Are they a a not-for-profit? Are they a public company? Do they believe in withholding the technology or sharing it? Right. These things will continue to go back and forth. But the, the constant is is that clash, right, of of belief and then, you know, those corporate forces which are about money and about attention and promotion. You know, I, I think that those are the constants. And, and that's that, that's why I really believe in the book is because all those things are just going to continue to play out in the years to come. I mean, one thing that I really was curious to ask you about is, you know, you kind of set up these kind of dichotomies that you personify, right? And like sort of Gary Marcus versus Jan LeCun, maybe, or like Elon Musk versus Zuckerberg. You should probably say what those are. People listening to this could probably guess what the, you know, what sure. the dichotomies are here. Um, sure. I, I like, I was curious, where do you land on this stuff now that you've kind of talked to everybody? Like, do you feel like, for example, like, do, do you feel like we are, you know, sort of like overstating the future progress of AI. It sort of seems like if you take a historical view, like you're taking, it seems to me like ML has just kind of made this sort of steady incremental progress and people keep moving the goalposts of like what, you know, what it means to do AGI. Like first you have to win at chess and then you have to win at go. And, you know, you know, then it's like, you have to pass the Turing test, but then that doesn't even, you know, that's not even hard enough. And so like when I take, for me, when I take a historical view, I sort of imagine steady progress extending out into the future. Then when, for me, when I look at these algorithms, it sure seems like a stretch that they turn into, you know, kind of AGI just with, with more compute. So I actually don't even know where I land, but I'm, I'm curious where, where, where you land on this topic. Well, I, I think you're right. You, you have to look at this historically and that's what the book does is that a lot of the claims that are being uh, made now about, AGI and this sort of pervading our lives and sort of taking away jobs, all that has been around since the 50s, right? And I show that in the book. And in a way, it's just a repeat of that. Now, that said, there has been a huge amount of progress over the past 10 years, which is what the book really covers, right? We've had a huge amount of progress. What what I really believe firmly in as a journalist, particularly as a, as a New York Times reporter, is I feel like what has happened and what is possible in the public consciousness is way out of whack, right? And a lot of that just has to do with the term artificial intelligence, you know, which has been thrown around so much over the past 10 years. That alone gives people the false, a false impression, right, about what is happening and what will happen. And then, you know, frankly, most people writing about this stuff, they, you know, 
for whatever reason, they don't really understand what's going on and, and they exaggerate and maybe they exaggerate consciously. Maybe they exaggerate unconsciously. Maybe they don't know that they're exaggerating. Mm -hmm. But if you sit down and you read most of the stuff that's written, you have a false impression. And what that that is one thing that I, I really want to, at least in my small corner of the universe, try to correct and show people what is really happening. Right. And the fact of the matter is none of us knows what the future is. And, you know, as much as, you know, someone who really believes in AGI might get on this this, you know, call with us and, you know, get angry at me for not saying AGI is, is around the corner. The reality, and I think the book shows this is that none of us know what the future holds. And when it comes to AGI, it's an argument. It's a, it's a religious argument, right? And I show that in the book. People with the same experience, the same knowledge, the same respect across the industry really disagree on this. But go ahead. No, no, it's, it's funny. I guess like one thing that's sort of, it's almost in the water, so I don't think to question it because I kind of swim in it, right? Is why do you think it becomes such a religious argument? Like, why why do you think people feel so passionately frustrated that you know other people don't agree with them on this on this particular topic of like is AGI possible or coming or coming soon? Well, I, I think that that people are just coming from from a very different place when they start talking about these things. And w one of the things you realize about Silicon Valley um, is if you're going to be successful, you've got to really believe in what you're doing, right? That's, again, either consciously or unconsciously, that's how you attract the money. That's how you attract the talent. That's how you get these things to snowball, okay? Whether you're building, you know, a tiny little app that does something simple or you're trying to build AGI. So what has happened is that people have taken a rule book that has worked in Silicon Valley for certain things, let's say Facebook, Right. And they're applying it to this notion that they can build a machine that can do anything the human brain can do. So in their mind, they're just doing what everybody else has done. Right. Mm -hmm. But AGI is different than Facebook. Right. That is a goal that is far, far bigger. And so, you know, in their world, they're just doing what everyone around them is doing, has done for the past, you know, however many decades in Silicon Valley. But for someone else, like they're taking a huge step and they, they do just do not see that, right? How can you extrapolate from, from you know, a machine that uh, can play Go to a machine that can do any, anything the human brain can do? And if you ask people to, to describe to you how that's going to happen, right, that, that's at very least that's hard for them to do, right, describe how that's going to happen, right? You know, the path that they see is a path that they paint in very broad strokes. And, you know, saying I can build a Facebook, you know, there's a path there to building a social networking app. We know how to do that. Mm -hmm. We don't know how to do this. And we don't know how to build a self-driving car, right? That alone is an astronomically difficult project that we don't quite know how to complete yet. But People still talk about it in terms like it's already there. And on one level, you see why they do that. But on another level, right, it misleads the public. It misleads people about what's going to happen soon. So I guess I sense that one opinion that you kind of hold is that there are a lot of overinflated claims 
and therefore the public feels like the public does not have a good sense of what's possible and, and not possible. That, that, that at the very least is true, right? You know, who knows, you know, tomorrow we may have a new technology that really blows us out of the water, but what we've seen over the past um, 10 years with this are, are repeated overinflated claims, just in the sense of they don't give, think about your mother, right? Or my mother, when, when they read stories, even in the New York Times over the past few years, where they assume that tomorrow we're going to have cars that can drive by themselves all over the place, right? They can't help but have that assumption because that's the way it's written about. And journalists write about that way because people like Elon Musk and so many others just say it's around the corner and they take them at face value, right? So I think that's really where the problem is, is that you're you're misleading the general public. And and I do think that that's a real real problem, right? In, in a at a time when our society is grappling with what is true and what is not, let's let's make more of an effort to to say what is actually possible now and show people what the reality is now, and and try to do that in a way that's separate from what might come, right? The reality is now is that self driving cars aren't up to the task. But okay? it's kind of interesting you say that because well I wonder if maybe journalists are at, at fault then because like certainly elon musk has a pattern of over stated claims but i i think he might be a, a little bit of an outlier i mean you would know better than me but i feel like when i talk to ml researchers they tend to be fairly understated or or almost like maybe a little too reticent in their claims and maybe the ones that rise to the top aren't like that but you know we've done like 30 40 interviews on this here and I almost feel like I'm sure. trying to push people to, you know, right. like like extrapolate what you're doing. Like it seems like a big deal. I don't know. Like when you talk to like Jeff Hinton, or, or actually, let's go way back. Right in your book, you talk about like Rosenblatt, and then the you know the New York Times. I think or you know, it yeah. seems like a lot of journals, journalists kind of write about what he's doing, saying it's going to get consciousness soon. When he's basically like you know doing like you know like a perception without even like a second layer. Exactly. Um, so what happened there? Like, do you think do you think Rosenblatt has a responsibility to communicate better what's going on. Like, was he making overinflated claims at that time? Well, yeah, he, and- he, he clearly he was, right? I mean, he's, you know, he's telling these reporters that, you know, we're going to have systems that could walk and talk and, and recreate themselves and, you know, somehow venture into space, right? Like, and so the reporters are just going to report that. Right, right. And, yeah, okay. And in, in a lot of ways, it's not that different now. And you talk about Elon Musk being an outlier, that's true and it's not. Like, again, you talk about ML researchers. That is not a monolithic group. Like, that's the other thing I want to show people is that you know, even the New York Times has written stories, AI experts say X, right? Well, AI experts, that's not, you know, one group. It's, you know, it's this, like, spectrum of people. And if you, you got to remember, like, DeepMind and OpenAI are founded on the notion that they are going to build AGI. And there are people at those companies who really, really believe that. And they're at the top of those companies. And they may not be as cavalier as Elon Musk. They may not have the megaphone that he has, but they really believe that. And those are important 
companies, right? They have a lot of serious research talent, particularly DeepMind has had some really important breakthroughs. You know, just recently, the CAFS contest breakthrough, that, that's really important research that is, in, a, in some ways is separate from this you know, notion that they're going after AGI. So these are important, important labs that are founded on this disbelief, right? And, you know, I, I've known Demis Hassabis, you know, the co-founder of, of DeepMind for a long time now. And whatever you think about that belief of AGI, you got to take that guy seriously, right? He, you know, he has a track record. He is, he is a, a serious, serious person. And you may have a problem with a lot of the stuff he has done or said, but you have to listen to him, right? And I, I mean, similarly, the work coming out of OpenAI, I, I, it'd be hard to argue it's not super impressive. Like, you know, so I feel like some people sure. claim that it's a little, so there's a little bit of publicity stunt, but you know, you, you know, the, like you talk about the robotic hand manipulating a Rubik's cube and, and that's really impressive. And maybe the Rubik's cube makes it more fun, but you know, I, I, I still think it's an amazing breakthrough. I agree. In robotics that I completely agree. It's both, right? It is super impressive science on the one hand, and it's a stunt. It's both. And, and me as a, as a New York Times reporter, as a book author, my job is to show you that it is both, right? And give you a really real sense of what's going on there. It's very easy to see that hand, right? This five-fingered robotic hand solve um, a Rubik's Cube and think AGI is gonna happen tomorrow, right? If you're, if you're not educated in the field, it is super easy to think that. Mm -hmm. And so my job is to say, there is an advance here, right? And you can see it, but like there, there are some chinks in the armor. And, and, and the other thing that I've seen is that not even everyone at OpenAI is aware of the chinks in the armor, right? And that, that hand, while the result is super impressive, there are some caveats there that, that show you that even the science isn't quite where you think it might be, you know, let alone sort of the stunty nature of it, right? You know, m my point over and over again is that these things are complicated. I guess, you know, maybe this is inserting myself into it, into your story, but, you know, I was kind of there throughout it and I, I couldn't help but I keep having this thought, you know, I, I was at the Stanford AI lab in like 2003, 2004 at the sort of like nadir of interest in neural nets. And you talk about this in your book and, and, you know, I felt like the zeitgeist there was kind of like, ah, these neural nets are kind of like the name is too good. Like, you know, we use support vector machines, not like neural nets. That's like, you know, that's not serious. And it's like, these people just are trying to like hype these things and yeah, they sort of work, but they're like, kind of tweaked to the point where they're like overfitting and serious people wouldn't, you know, wouldn't make a system called a neural net. And it's been kind of interesting to watch it turn out that the neural net strategy actually really works. You know, like the perceptron is like the base thing that, that now is like, you know, used everywhere. And so I actually kind of feel like maybe the, the folks I was working with at that time, you know, weren't dreaming enough. Like it's, you know, I think it's great that Andrew Ng, you know, kind of, you know, when he saw it working really, you know, invested into it. But I, you know, I remember like you talk about some stories about like the skepticism of the progress of neural nets. And I like vividly remember that. It just like everyone says they have a better algorithm, especially neural nets. But then, but then they were right. And I kind of wonder if you feel like there's any lessons to that. Cause it seems so remarkable that something would get all this attention and then sort of like, you know, be thought of as bad and then kind of come back as like the working technology. Like, I wonder if there's other 
technologies out there that that have followed that same path. Oh, I think it's, I mean, it's an incredible story, right? I mean, that's like, it's amazing that some people kept working on that, this stuff. And, and amazing, that, right? that, you know, again, is at the heart of this book. And, and it's something that I have always really um, been amazed by and impressed by is, is someone who keeps working on something, even in the face of everyone telling them it's not, it's not going to work, right? That is the basis for any good story. And that certainly happened here and it will keep happening. And in, and in fact, you know, in some ways you've already come full circle where you have this sort of the, let's call them the Gary Marcus crowd, mm -hmm. you know, you know, who are saying the same things like, you know, neural nets don't do everything. These guys uh, say they're going to do, they're limited and, you know, and, and so in a way, they're still fighting the, 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 the same battle, all right? But, but you're right. There are other technologies that will come along, have already come along, that people are skeptical of, that, you know, that are going to work in the face of that. And it, and it takes that, right? It, it takes that belief and, and that determination and, and just sort of years and years of hard work to make this stuff, you know, do what it's, what it's ultimately going to do. It seems like a lot of the characters in your book, I was kind of struck by, I don't have like a good stat on this, so I could be wrong, but it seemed like a lot of them didn't come from a computer science background. Like it seemed like a remarkable number of them kind of came from biology and neuroscience and, and things like that. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? I, I agree. And that, that's another thing that I'm fascinated by is AI is a weird field, right? It's, it's this combination of various fields. And it's always been like this, right? Since the 50s, when the term was coined, it's this blend of computer science and neuroscience and psychology that has always been the case, and it continues to be the case. And, and this is embodied by, again, my main character, Jeff Hinton, right? Who he is he is someone who didn't come at this from the computer science angle and he's still like one of the running things in the book is that he loves to downplay his skills as a as both a computer scientist and a mathematician and you know he doesn't think of himself as either he he you know he comes at it from that direction and and sort of gives this what is really just math you know a perspective that you wouldn't necessarily um expect it to have and that bothers some people, and and some people don't understand the, that perspective that he gives it. But that you know that that is how he thinks, and it, it has a real influence not only on on how this field has progressed, but it does have an influence on how people perceive it. Right? Mm -hmm. People don't understand when he and others, uh, as much as they explain it and re-explain it, they don't understand them calling a neural network, you know, a facsimile of, of the human brain. They don't understand that that's just a metaphor in some ways, right? But that's, but that's part of the way this field works. Well, I guess from a historical lens, maybe the, the takeaway is that, you know, being an outsider is, is an advantage in, in some ways. Oh, ab absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's sort of the story of, of Silicon Valley as well. Right. But that doesn't mean that just because you're an outsider that you're going to be right. You know, not not every outsider is right. Uh, some are and, and, and some aren't. And uh, sure. I think that's the story of this book as well. Probably everyone else is going to ask you this question, but I, I felt like I had to ask it. Do you, do you have any kind of like fun stories that you couldn't fit into the book because they didn't quite fit or any any good anecdotes in all the research you were doing? That's a good question. Let me let me think that over. Most of it's in there, to tell you the truth. I mean, 
like all the good stuff some of it is just unbelievable and 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 it took a, a long time to get and it, and it's you know once you have it from one person you got to get it from another so there were a lot of things right including like the lead story in the book in the prologue like that I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get in there and and thank goodness I did talking about the auction of the the company DNN exactly and in particular the price right that, that was one of the hardest hardest facts to nail down you in know, the whole process. I have to tell process. you, that's yeah. the only anecdote in the book I don't totally believe. It was the one where it just, and maybe it's because it's actually true. It just feels unbelievable. But it is 100% true. and Including, wait, so the part that I felt like it might have felt that way to the people involved, right. but it's hard to believe it actually happened like this, is they like literally got Google and Baidu to like bid at a particular time, like they're running like a Sotheby auction or something. Is it, are you, are you sure that's true? That's amazing. No, it's true because I love it. I've talked to, I can't tell you the number of people I talked to who are involved in that, like directly involved in that. It's absolutely true. And it's, I guess that's, that's how it goes, right? Like the thing that's really true is like actually unbelievable. right? right. (laughs) Exactly. And, but like so many parts of that story are amazingly, you know, improbably true because it encapsulates everything, right? At the very beginning of this movement, let's call it a, a movement, you know, like the, or what is it? Like the very beginning of this explosion in AI hype, in neural networks starting to work, all the players there, you know, who would be involved are already there, right? Mm-hmm. From China and Baidu to Google to Microsoft to Deep, DeepMind is there, right? They're all yes. there in this competition that would play out over the next 10 years. Like I, you know, and, and that's, that whole story came to me in bits and pieces, right? Over the course of, it was really, you know, months or maybe even years. And as each piece pops into place, you're, you're, you're saying this sounds too perfect to be true, but you know, it's true because it's coming from multiple people I see. and, you know, and it's verified by multiple people and, and, all the perspectives kind of come together and some people say, well, I won't tell you that. And then you get it from somebody else and they say, okay, yes, it's true. Right. That's the, what's most fun about being a journalist is when you, when you get those, those nuggets that just show you so much, you know, about human nature and also just help your story just fit together in ways you never expected. I never expected the book to begin with that, but it had to begin with that because it's just, it's just the greatest story. It's a good story. And you go back to it a lot. And yeah, it is a great story. I guess one more just thought that I had reading your book is I, I, you know, I hadn't quite had the timeline in my head of like when neural nets start taking off, but I, I feel like one thing that's kind of impressive is I feel like, you know, Elon Musk and Zuckerberg and, and Larry Page, I feel like they noticed that neural nets were working really well before most academics even noticed it. Like, I feel like they, they, like, I was thinking about the timeline. I was thinking about when, you know, and I'm in ML, I'm selling to ML companies for the last 15 years. And, and I feel like actually they were really early. Like, how did they figure this out? It's remarkable, isn't it? And I, and I think one of the things you can do is contrast the way they reacted. And you can, and you can criticize the way they reacted. You can say they went too far, of course, but contrast the way Google, and Facebook reacted to the way Microsoft reacted, right? And 
Microsoft did not jump on it the way that those two other companies did. They didn't see it the way that mm -hmm. the leaders of those companies did. You know, part of the narrative there, right, in my book is that, you know, Jeff Hinton was in Microsoft's lab doing this stuff with speech, and it mm -hmm. worked in a way that nobody thought it would work. Nobody, you know, in the, in the ML community, nobody at Microsoft, and it works. And they're all shocked, they're all blown away, but they don't jump on it the way that Google and Facebook did. That's really, really interesting. And you you do wonder, you know, is it about the age of the company? Is it about the the general area that the company plays in? Like Google had a real need for that speech recognition system that Hinton and his students built in a way that Microsoft didn't, right? Because it had Android. It had a place to put it. Now, it was also a company that, and this is talking in broad strokes, that that would take new technologies and put them into play far faster than Microsoft would, especially in those days, right? That's part of it. But, it, you know, in the end, it's a combination of these things, right? It's the way the leaders think. It's the way the company is built, which in some ways is a reflection of the leader. And it's about the age of the companies, Right. Once these companies get to be a certain size, like Microsoft, it becomes harder to jump on, on something. But like you see in the book, the way that Google jumped on it, and it's astonishing, right? You know, there's that conversation between Larry Page and Alan Eustace, mm -hmm. you know, where he says, you, you're, you got to bet big on this. And this is, you're right, this is before even the ML community at large really understood what was going on. And Larry Page is is, is telling Alan Hughes to basically bet the farm on it. Mm -hmm. It's astonishing. It really is. I guess my takeaway is when I see something working, I'm going to jump on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but even then, like, <laughs> like, you know, it's unclear where it's going to go, right? Like, you know, it works for speech and then it works for images. And that ImageNet is such a big moment. But then people in the ML community are still like, is this really going to work with natural language? I mean, years later, they're saying that. Is this really going to work with natural language? And then it does. Right? You know, these, these large language models, a la Google BERT, GPT-3, mm -hmm. you know, it really started to work. And there was real doubt there. And, you know, it's it's hard to see these things, even when you're close to them. And uh, And, you know... We could go on down the line, robotics. It's not clear, even when this stuff works with multiple different areas, whether it's going to work with the next one. One theme that also comes up in your book, of course, because we're talking about academics, is sort of like who gets credit and who doesn't get credit and, and where's credit deserved. And actually, one anecdote that I, I never knew that you have in your book, despite Wojciech being a, a pretty good friend of mine, is that Alex, that was originally called Wajnet. Is that, the, do I have that right? It's what, I can't believe he never told me that. I feel like if I was him, I would, I would be... <laughs> 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 it's a great story, right? You know, why do we call it Alex Net? You go, you go to the paper, and, it, and the paper doesn't really call it Alex Net. It's like everybody calls it that. Well, the way it worked was, and you know, this is in the book, you know, in, in you know, in a much more eloquent way. But like, Google had started to build its own version, basically, and it and it was Voicheck who who did it. And the and the the way it worked is Google was is whoever built the thing, you named it after. <laughs> And so that's what they called it. And then 
you know, Hinton and Krzyzewski and Suskover show up and they're like, why are you calling it that, right? <laughs> it's Krzyzewski who built the thing. So they just start calling it that. And that's what propagates, right, all over the community. I think that that's, it's a testament to those guys, right? <laughs> the, the, you know, they're, they're rightfully so in a lot of ways, revered in a way. You know, they had some capital, right? But it's also just funny how those those things work in the in the tech community. And sometimes those 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 things are, are corrected, so to speak. Sometimes they're not, right? Well, and, who do you um, think? So d- is there someone that stands out to you as kind of not getting the credit they deserve? Because most of the people that the heroes of your book, I think, are really really well known, at least to people listening to this. But do you feel like someone really did people talk about someone when you when you interviewed them that that doesn't show up so so in such a big way? Well, you know, you know, I think Jurgen Schmidt humor is 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 the classic example, right? He's been written out a lot. A lot. He's written about in my book. You know, the reality. Although I don't is, know that he comes across so well in your book. Interesting. Okay. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think. You know, I. What I was going to say is, with all of this stuff. It's complicated, okay? <laughs> and and let's take let's go well before we get to Jurgen, let's start let's start with Alex Net. You know, the reality is is although Alex Krzyzewski and Hinton and Ilya Sutskever, you know, did the work on that and really made it happen, they are building on the work of Jan LeCun, right? They're using a modified version of his algorithm. And he's building on the work of so many others. Everybody's building on everybody else's work. And and on some level, they all deserve credit, right? And, you know, what Schmidt Huber is saying is, you know, these guys who work for these very big companies are getting this credit and and I'm not, right? And, you know, I, re- I really like Jurgen and 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 I and I feel for him. At the same time, he is out there saying, "Give me credit, give me credit," right? And that's that's part of this too, right? Right? Some people do that. Some people let the the credit come to them, right? And that's going to be viewed in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Some people are are going to criticize Jurgen um, for saying, "Give me credit, give me credit," but but you know. I know him and 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 you can't help but feel for him as well because totally. you know the reason that these others have gotten so much credit in large part is because they had these giant companies behind them right mm-hmm. and and you know these companies are good at at you know at, at producing and driving narratives. And, you know, some of the narratives that have been out there aren't necessarily true, right? There have been, you know, published stuff, a lot of it that came from the companies that don't necessarily give the real view of these things. And the real view is that, you know, it's, it's more complicated than you think. Hmm. Do you think there's a topic in AI that the press should cover more than they do? I think it's more about, and I guess I'm going back to what I've said before, is is the press needs to cover this in a different way, right? You know, and and with more skepticism, I guess. With more skepticism, and and it's look, it is hard. Like again, we're talking about you, you got to strike a right the right balance between you know showing people what's really going on, but not going too deep in the weeds. Like you don't want to lose people, and 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 that's that's a very hard thing to do, but. You know, when it comes to topics, what I will say is that, you know, 
a lot of people have written about this this clash at Google between Tim Neat and and the company. You know, she's saying that she was fired, and some people at Google are saying that wasn't the case. And and you know, in a way, it's you know, it, it's it's a very specific argument. But I, I think this is really representative of a much larger clash that is is going to have to happen in this field, right? These language models that are being built, these giant, you know, GPT-3 style language models, they are inherently biased, right? That is just that is just a fact because human language is biased and these things train on this enormous amount of, of text. They're biased and 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 they spew hate speech and, and other toxic material. That's just that's just the reality. And that's what Tim Neat and others were saying in the paper that was at issue at Google. That battle is going to, if these models are going to have to, if those models are going to continue to progress and they really get out into the world, that battle is going to happen, it's going to have to happen in, on a much larger scale at so many different companies. And, right. And, and what's the battle? Like, what, what are, what are the two like visions of the future? Well, on the one hand, you have a company like Microsoft who put out, you know, a much simpler conversational bot years ago now called Tay, right? Yeah, of course um, I was, remember that. Yeah. It's rule, rules-based for the most part, chat bot, and it started spewing hate speech and it created this huge, you know, backlash and they and they took it away. Okay? Microsoft ostensibly, you know, is going to put GPT-3 out in tandem with Open OpenAI. That is a clash waiting to happen, right? Microsoft's got to deal with the fact that these things are biased, and that's going to offend a lot of people, right? How do you deal with that? That's an open question. It's an open question for Microsoft, for Google. For Facebook, for OpenAI, on the one hand, you have science really progressing and doing amazing things, but you have this problem. It's a problem for a lot of people, right? And some people don't see it as a problem. They just think we need to just re release this stuff and, you know, get over, you know, your issues with the bias and the hate speech. And But a lot of people think it's a real problem. And, and to the extent where, you know, that clash is going to have to happen if those models are going to continue to progress and to get out in the world, right? You got to find a way to deal with it, whether it's technically or, or, or by other means, right? And, you know, th that's why I think that that situation at Google is so important because it represents something much larger that's going on here. And it's something that, that the press is going to have to look at as well as all these companies. Hmm. Okay. One, one more question. Why, why is it so easy to demo a thing that's evocative <laughs> and so hard to turn that into a complete product that we engage with every day? I think it's, you know, it's just a, about aligning the technology with the need, okay? That OpenAI Rubik's Cube hand, right? That is not aligned with any need, right? We don't need that. The trick is, is finding, you know, where there's real gain and applying it, right? And I think that's where people, you know, often sort of miss the point, right? And they, and, you know, these neural networks have worked and worked really well in particular areas, right? They don't work well in other areas, 
you know, there's all this hype around AI and sort of remaking how your business operates, that sort of thing. But that's something different, right? It's, you know, there's not always an alignment. There's an alignment with that deep mind result, right? That is something that is a real need and they're going after it. And, and in one sense, you know, they solved it. There's still a lot of work to be done, but that's where- You're talking about protein folding, right? Protein folding, right? right. The cast contest, right? That's something that the world needs and they're going after. You know, GPT-3, it's not hard to, to be impressed by it, mm -hmm. but it's really hard to see where that's gonna have, you know, the, the practical application. When you find where it works, you know, it becomes much easier to show people, mm -hmm. right? You know, I think the difficulty is often just sort of a misalignment, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. All right. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much. That was that was a lot of fun. Thanks for answering Thank all you. my questions. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, glad to do it. And uh, um, uh, really good talking to you as well. Yeah, real pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of Grading Descent. Doing these interviews are a lot of fun. And it's especially fun for me when I can actually hear from the people that are listening to these episodes. So if you wouldn't mind leaving a comment and telling me what you think or starting a conversation, that would make me inspired to do more of these episodes. And also, if you wouldn't mind liking and subscribing, I'd appreciate that a lot.